Thy Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. We're talking about the waterfront strike of 1951. And the only problem I think, you tell me, it is so hard to regale the story of the 51 strike without pissing somebody off. Oh, absolutely. It's still supercharged, Graham. It really is. Yeah. Definitely was the biggest industrial confrontation that we've seen in this country. It wasn't as violent, actually, as the Great Strike of 1913, but it definitely lasted longer, 151 days. 22,000 workers walked off their jobs in New Zealand. Now, we only had a population of 2 million back then, and that's so sort of 1% of the New Zealand um, population essentially walked off their jobs. It was substantial. And it didn't just happen, of course. It was a culmination of decades of unrest on the wharves, of course. The wharves are sort of like the nexus or the through point for our entire export economy. Back then, of course, it was hands-on from the wharf right down into the hold. They got about four shillings an hour back in 1950. It was a horrible strike, this one. I mean, unionists got their heads bashed in by the police. There were threats and there was a railway bridge was even bombed and scab the word scab was used with utmost vitriol against people labor mp uh, mabel howard she called the dispute a war on woman because the wives of the strikers too had to survive with no income at all and it was illegal the government made it illegal to actually help any of them the regulations even applied to children graham in wellington's clifton terrace primary school strikers children were actually separated from other pupils during playtime and lunchtime in case they were given any lunch that's how the law was interpreted when it comes down to that it's pretty bad and you know it all took place in a climate of cold war suspicion the the two opposing sides they denounced each other as nazis and commies and traitors and terrorists and it polarized politics and it split the whole union movement and that leaves this bitter legacy that lingers to this day and you referred to that before about how we aren't going to piss someone off well I think I will probably but they couldn't even decide on what to call the dispute the employers and government just called it a strike but to the uh, waterfront workers it was a dispute for one side the water siders um, said it was a lockout and then the employers said it was a strike. And it was also a great division between uh, two union bodies, wasn't it? The Federation of Labour and the Watersiders. Yeah, that's right. And relations between the government and the waterfront employees and the New Zealand Watersiders Workers Union. Now, that was led by Jock Barnes, Toby Hill and Alexander Drennan. Now, they um, were particularly hard liners. And our Jock Barnes, he only died in 2000 and his memoir was called uh, Never the White Flag. As the Cold War between the Western powers and the Soviet Union intensified in the sort of 19 
1940s, well, government ministers, they decided to denounce the wharfy leaders as communist wreckers. It is a fight between the communist-dominated militant section and all decent people. Everywhere they have their agents out for only one purpose, and that is to cause more trouble. Their organisation and power is much more widespread than most people know. Their wings have got to be clipped, or our system as we know it will fade and die. But of course, neither Barnes nor Hill was actually a member of the Communist Party, but they got labelled like that. And this was almost McCarthyism, Graham, in New Zealand, the paranoia about being, you know, labelled a communist. There was one little incident, actually. I'm just going to sort of do a couple of lead-ups because I never think these things just erupt suddenly, of course. The Public Service Association at the time, the PSA, it was led by a very capable man called Jack Lewin, and he was also quite a militant chap himself. In 1948, Cecil Holmes, now he was a documentary maker with the National Film Unit and he was also a PSA activist who knew Lewin quite well. This filmmaker had his satchel snatched from his car outside Parliament. Now, it was taken by a member of the Prime Minister's staff and the bag contained Holmes' Communist Party membership card and correspondence about a planned stop work meeting at the NFU. um, in which he, he uh, suggested that Lewin should, and this was written down, butter the buggers up a bit. Their contents found their way to an influential union leader, Fintan Patrick Walsh. Now, he was a close ally of Prime Minister Fraser, and Walsh sensed an opportunity to embarrass his militant rivals. Now, the acting Prime Minister, Walter Nash, he released the documents to the press and he tainted the PSA and Lewin with his communist smear and Lewin actually left for Australia never to return from that. We lost one of our most up and coming filmmakers if you like but this was the sort of thing that was going on. It was absolutely incredible and in 1949 they deregistered was they thought it was communist led Auckland Carpenters Union. That was an ally of the Watersiders and there was a right wing kind of feeling starting to happen in the country as well about these communist stirrers if you like. And infiltrators. There were thought that some were guided by Moscow. Yeah, exactly. You know, Labour's 14 years of power, that ended in the general election in um, November 1949 and Sidney Holland's um, National Party won a sweeping victory and he'd come in promising to ease post-war restrictions and control militant unionism head on. So this was the sort of background for the strike just bursting out suddenly in February 1950. So um, workers were demanding higher wage increases. They'd put up with a lot from the war and stuff. So in January 1951, the Arbitration Court awarded a uh, 15% wage increase to all workers covered by the industrial arbitration system. Now, this did not apply to waterside workers. Now, their employment was controlled by the Waterfront Industry Commission, which was quite different. All the shipping was really owned by British-controlled companies. They offered the Wharfies 9%, claiming that earlier waterfront wage increases should have been taken into account. The Watersiders protested by refusing to work overtime from the 13th of February, and the shipping companies in return refused to hire them unless they agreed to work 
extra hours. And when no agreement could be reached, the union members were actually locked out and the nation's wharves came to a complete standstill. This was the immediate cause of the 1951 strike. Sydney Holland made a public address on the radio to the entire nation and he said, the public is sick and tired of the way the watersiders behave. The public demands that the present state of affairs be ended. The rule of law must prevail. Contracts must be honoured and agreements must be kept. And he called on all the people of New Zealand to support the government in a firm stand it was going to be taking against the waterside workers. And he said, the government is as fed up as it possibly can be and it's not going to put up with it any longer. How long has the strike been gone on now? Not even a month that it had gone on, not even a month. There is a big player in this, to my thought anyway, and what I have read about it, the power play between... Jock Barnes and Walsh. It was a real power play by Walsh, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And uh, Barnes was the absolute militant. He uh, thought that uh, the union just couldn't do enough to uh, counter the government's demands. But Walsh was in league with the government, thinking that the moderate path of uh, arbitration and reconciliation was the way to do it. But no way was Jock Barnes going to have a bar of it. We'll take our first break, and when we return, the story of the 1951 waterfront strike, which I suspect is still in a lot of people's memories today. The Weekend Variety Wireless. The 1951 waterfront strike, and almost every history that you read about this time, it comes through the filter of one side or the other, doesn't it? I'm not sure if a middle ground is the correct ground with this. That's a difficult thing to do with these sort of histories. How to describe them and people's motivation, who did what, why? Yeah, exactly. The um, action that the government took very quickly seemed very extreme. Yesterday, Tuesday, at noon, I called the representatives of the watersiders to my room. And I issued them what would be interpreted as being an ultimatum, that the government would be loath to take any extreme action. But we felt that a condition of emergency did exist and that we would require the powers of such a proclamation to deal with the situation. Unless work is resumed, normal work throughout New Zealand is resumed on the wall <coughs> Wednesday, then a proclamation of, emerg of emergency will be declared. The day after the broadcast made by Sydney Holland to the nation uh, appealing for, for support for the government that same day, uh, men from the armed services moved on to the wharves at Auckland and Wellington to handle all the perishable goods that had been uh, held up and the government was empowered to use men of the services on this work and they were given other powers too to deal with the situation and uh, following the proclamation of a state of national emergency but there was a lot of criticism of the government's action, particularly from the opposition. Um, they, they said it was distasteful in the democratic spirit of the people. And Walter Nash, the um, leader of the opposition, the Labour leader of the opposition, he expressed the view that emergency powers in an industrial dispute should only be adopted as a last resort. The Labour Party contended that waterside workers and their employers should be called together at a compulsory conference to settle the dispute early, but there seemed a very little likelihood, though, of the two parties coming to any 
the agreement because they were on polar opposite sides. The employers certainly were not prepared to meet the um, Watersiders' wage demands. Now, a Watersider, say July 1950, was getting uh, four shillings and threepence an hour. The weekly rise of ten shillings was proposed, but it just wasn't enough. It wasn't in line with what the general population got approved, so they just went out on it, really. After a uh, conference on the 13th of February, the National Executive of the Union instructed watersiders throughout the country to start an overtime strike at 5pm that same day. This was tantamount to the strike and it sort of set it off. A waterfront work, it couldn't be carried on satisfactory unless overtime was worked, of course, because that's the way the ships came in. Now, the Minister of Labour, um, William Sullivan, he brought the parties together at a conference in his office on the 16th of February and the normal procedure in dispute like this, of course, was to refer it to an arbitration tribunal where the Waterfront Industry Authority was to look after that. But the employers were willing to follow this and abide by the decision, but the union officials, they just refused to refer the dispute to the authority. So they... They wanted to have final say in the matter, really. And because their demands were not met, uh, members of the union just refused to work any more overtime. And this was a breach of their conditions of employment. And so the men were dismissed and placed on penalty. Now, that seems pretty bloody harsh, actually. Yeah. My point of view. They said, we're not working overtime, but they're there during the day. The reaction from the employers uh, and the government was, shut them out completely, you're over. To me, this smells of Walsh goading the government into it, saying, we'll get rid of these guys. Yeah, it does. Lock them out, we'll go in and work. Yeah, and the next day, 850 watersiders in Wellington were without work because they had refused to work overtime. In Auckland, there were 1,500 watersiders were idle. About 400 were still working. Now, the watersiders continued reporting for work each day, but as they said, they were prepared only to work an eight-hour day. But, you know, the overtime that um, they were not prepared to work did not necessarily mean work in excess of their 40 hours a week. The waterfront holder up in New Zealand was regarded with a real unease in Britain in particular because they still had meat rations over there and so this was sort of reported as disturbing for the supply. Britain had rationing right up until 1954, 55? Yeah, I think it did, didn't it? Yeah. And Holland and Sullivan, they both made it plain that action would be taken to ship foodstuffs to the United Kingdom as well to ensure the supply of food and essential commodities in New Zealand as well. So the National Executive of the Federation of Labour made a request to the government that every avenue be explored before imposing the authority of the state in the waterfront hold-up. But when um, wharf workers throughout the country failed to respond to the government's call to end the strike, 16th of February, the government felt compelled to take decisive action then and That's when the strike spread to other unions and freezing workers in the um, Nauranga Gorge and Wellington and Petone, they ceased work on the 27th of February and the following day all West Coast state coal mines were idle in sympathy uh, with the watersiders. Yeah, we've got to, um, I think, reiterate 
the difference between the Watersiders and the Federation of Labour. To modern ears, they sound like one and the same thing. Yeah. They were not. No, no, the Federation of Labour was definitely uh, in league with the government and the Trade Union Congress. They were the militant wing that broke away. Now, uh, the departure of the Monowai to Sydney was delayed because some of the crew refused to work too, so it was affecting shipping as well, um, passenger shipping. Sydney Holland said in a national broadcast again, we could give in to the strikers, but we won't. He was defiant. So on um, the 28th of February, the government deregistered the New Zealand Waterside Workers Union. Essentially, Graham, they were just no longer legal. Sullivan explained that this action had been taken because employment had been discontinued on the waterfront and the Waterside's representatives had refused to allow their dispute to be handled uh, in a constitutional manner. And he, um, and he said the way is now clear for the registration of new unions. So what the government wanted to do was break up that union and get a whole lot of friendly smaller ones going, basically. With the help of Mr Walsh. Yeah, exactly. Now, by early March, the servicemen were doing a fine job on the wharves. Navy and the Air Force co-opted into it and they kept essential cargoes moving. At Wellington Air Force gangs, they were unloading flour and general cargo. It was been reported that were handling an average of 23 tonnes an hour from each hatch, which was actually a big improvement on the work of the watersiders. So information that was shared with the public was seen to discredit them, of course. Oh, right, those slacking and lazy on, on the waterfront. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Well, we can do much better with them. And the public trustee, now this, they were the official receiver of the funds of the New Zealand Waterside uh, Workers Union. They took control from the 1st of March of all the um, various bank accounts of the union and uh, that totaled £20,000 or so around the country and in addition they took £950 in cash from the union's office now basically they just seized that similar action was taken the following morning at all towns where there were branches of the unions There's fault on both sides I think well look, put it this way it may seem to a lot of people and it's fair that it seemed like a small thing that they, they were making a fuss about compared with the amount of impact that the strike had but the government's reaction you're deregistered um, if you're not going to work over time then we're going to lock you out that's real brute force stuff and and now they just okay you're not a union anymore bugger off yeah exactly and the servicemen naval personnel they operated a skeleton coastal shipping service for um, where there was food fuel and other necessities were distributed so you know they, they were um, sent all around the country and emergency supply committees they were set up in virtually all the affected areas anyway and the everyday services were coordinated to cause as little hardship to to the community as possible now not a lot of anger from the watersiders i understand towards the military that had been co-opted into doing the work that they'd previously done because so many of them were ex-servicemen as well and if you're a soldier or a naval rating and you're out there doing your job they know that they'll catch hell if they disobey orders yeah they, yeah, they were operating under a command. Now, that's quite different from a so-called scab that operates out of his own free will to take a position of a striking worker. That's quite a different uh, story. So, you know, there certainly was that distinction made. Now, 
On the um, 6th of March, Sullivan asked Jock Barnes and Toby Hill, that was President and Secretary uh, respectively of the deregistered uh, Waterside Workers Union, to leave his rooms uh, when they were talking, saying he wasn't prepared to hear a deputation there with them present. And in future, the Minister said, discussions must be made with responsible men representative of the industry. So the government wasn't even prepared to talk to these guys now. They were out. There's a lot of alpha male stuff going on here, isn't there? Well, they were giving the government exactly the same back in a way. All right, we'll come back with more from the 1951 waterfront strike. And we're standing for no commoners down there. And when they like to start their trouble, they'll get marched off that walk quicker than you can imagine. You'll never get control of New Zealand as long as you live. And if you want your communist tactics to be introduced, go back to Russia where you definitely belong. But you haven't got the guts as men to even go over there. You're afraid. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. 1951 waterfront strike. They were a real solid lot. They were bound together by their ideology and they caught hell. They were branded stirrers and communists. Some of them probably were. Anyway, it's just a dreadful mess and that the, the government has made the Watersiders Union illegal, looking for other unions to take their place. The Watersiders now have enormous support from all around the country saying, you can't do that. Uh, and so we've got coal miners and railway workers and all sorts of people around the country joining in the strike. The country is just stuck. A lot of hardship is being had. Jared. Yeah, well, the government certainly taken a hard line. They're not prepared to consider any proposal for a settlement which departed from the principle of conciliation and arbitration. Things started to get nasty. I mean, there were two men fined, uh, only five pounds, by an Auckland magistrate for using insulting words about wharf work. And, of course, that was uh, the word scab. It amounted to intimidation. Sullivan gave an address on the Auckland waterfront to about 600 officers and men of the three services and he said to them the job you chaps are doing for New Zealand today is equivalent to the service of New Zealanders in Korea the services were given these pep talks that what they were doing was absolutely critical for New Zealand the strikers were called traitors we know that that really really stung them they hated that because more than 70% of them had fought in World War One or World War Two. That's right. The compulsory military training scheme was suspended to release um, instructors and other regular force men for everyday duty on the wharves and uh, the cruiser um, Bologna and the frigate um, Taupo. That was recalled from um, the Commonwealth Naval Manoeuvres in Australian waters to make more servicemen available. So everyone was pulled in. And uh, there were even interesting little stories like uh, how the lane hens all around Wellington were, were reported to be going under the axe about the middle of March in 1951 because there were not enough wheat and mash to feed them. It was starting to hit home on quite a few little levels. There were men that hadn't bought any wages home for six to eight weeks. It was a long time, Graham. Well, the most repulsive thing in all of this to me was these, uh, was it state of emergency or, or, or emergency legislation that you weren't allowed to gather and even talk about the strike. You went to write about it. Cartoonists were intimidated. 
as you said, children separated at school. You weren't allowed to give food to these people. Thank goodness so many New Zealanders ignored this, as did so many of the police. They ignored the dictum saying you weren't allowed to do that. Oh, absolutely. And they, the watersiders were losing about £80,000 a week in wages, Graham. you know, as the strike continued. And a lot of the returned servicemen had taken up apple and pear orchards in Nelson and developed them. And it was one of the, the best bumper seasons, 1951. All the trees had just weighed down and they were all just going rotten. And that was a bitter blow. It was treated as a triumph when the ship, the Dominion Monarch, it sailed on the 22nd of March for London. And that was the first ship loaded by servicemen during the strike which left the country and she went away two-thirds full and and all the um, shipping officials and government officials were loud in their praise because of the marvellous efforts of servicemen. It was treated like an issue of pride. Depending on who side you're on there, Oh, exactly. But it was a propaganda war, without a doubt, and the government played it very, very well. It is regrettable that the waterfighters should be dragged at the heels of irresponsible people who are at the head of their organisation and who are dominated and controlled by the Communist Party. They were determined to absolutely crush this union. And to so many people, the watersiders did seem like like Samson. They were willing to pull the temple around everybody's head to make their point. How far would they go, though? Yeah, the uh, emergency legislation would stop people being able to publish uh, stuff about the watersiders and, oh, my God, the pamphleteers and, and cartoonists that uh, were anti-government. They had to spread their publications around at night in secret for fear of being arrested that really stinks of fascism doesn't it oh it really does and, and holland was absolutely adamant there would be no repeal of regulations enacted to deal with the waterfront strike unless industrial peace was restored and holland indeed said the ultimate george bush sort of comment those who are not with us in this crisis are against us and that's how he kept pushing the line you either got called you know a loyalist basically or you were an activist and uh, should be crushed basically. All right, we'll take a final break, come back with the 1951 waterfront strike, how it so greatly affected and split New Zealand, although the split ended up to be very, very one-sided in the court of public opinion. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh, the 1951 waterfront strike. Um, what a time for New Zealand. It, uh, it really did split the country and caused us a lot of economic turmoil. But brother against brother, New Zealander against New Zealander. Farmers against the warfies. Commies against the fascists. At least that's how the inflammatory rhetoric went. And the government passed what seemed like rather draconian laws, which were anti-freedom, anti-freedom of speech in order to quash the support for the waterfront strike. 
Now, the Labor Party was very, very critical of these emergency regulations, in particular the prevention of persons speaking in public on conditions relative to the strike, which actually made it a criminal offence. Now, this is how they put it, to contribute in cash or kind for the benefit of any waterside worker, not paying to the waterside workers' money earned by them before the stoppage, and the taking of power to open private correspondence. Imagine what that is, what that means, an offence to contribute cash or anything to the benefit of a waterside worker. And speaking in public about the strike. Yeah, and to be able to open their private correspondence, their private mail, that's just astounding, Graham. And union uh, leaders did go around the country, stood up in front of um, a, a gathering, it may have been to the great benefit of the country, but the cops had to go and break it up. Yeah, it was a terrible situation. No wonder people just got more and more hardened in their, in their extreme view, of course, you know. But there were a lot of people who were, were losing out from the wages and some groups tried to give in. On Littleton Seaman on the 3rd of April, they voted in favour of returning to work, but... Wellington seamen, that was just two days later, they rejected the proposal and it became quite serious. The inter-island steamers couldn't sail. But all the Trans-Tasman shipping services were suspended. The government began inviting applications for work on the waterfront from former waterside workers and from non-unionists who in the past had worked on the waterfront and from other workers who wished to take up waterfront work as a full-time occupation. But there was obviously a move to employ a whole new group of friendly workers, basically. This strike was wished on you by your leaders. Now, after 14 weeks, where has it got you? Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. On Monday morning, we are starting again on the Wellington Wharves. We mean to do the job, and we are not worried who knows it. We are going to get those ships working, and we are going to build a union that will be respected in the community. Fill in your registration cards and end this business now. Join the new union and don't stay on the wrong side one day longer. Jock Barnes and Toby Hill and another unionist called T.G. Wells, um, they were officials of the um, deregistered union. They wrote to the government um, saying that they were prepared to accept the seven-point programme. The government rejected that proposal. Do you know how they rejected it? It's amazing. Go on. I've got some testimony here from, from yeah. Toby Hill's daughter about exactly how it happened on that evening. They were going to go to the government and say, OK, We'll accept the seven. It's over. The strike's over. And they accepted six of the seven points. And then they went back and they actually accepted the seventh point. I don't know which the seventh one was. But I remember very clearly um, my father saying that they were going down to the Prime Minister's house and that he would be home later that night. Holland was getting dressed for some ball, so they were ushered up into the Prime Minister's bedroom. Holland said, yeah, that'll be fine, that'll be fine, I've just got one phone call to make, that'll be fine, you're all right. I remember him coming home and saying, it's all over, and I was allowed to stay up till nine o'clock to listen to the news. And it wasn't announced at the nine o'clock news, and my mother said, I knew they wouldn't let you give in. And he said it'll be on the 11 o'clock news, but it wasn't. To whom the phone call was made, I don't know. 
I think it was Walsh, and the strike continued. Most of the shots that Sid Holland fired were probably originally uh, brought forward by Fintan Patrick Walsh with the main aim to get rid of Jock Barnes. Ah, oh, yeah, it was a dirty war, Graham. So basically what we've got there is the waterside, waterside unions have agreed and the government are just saying that they're going to refuse. It seems almost like cutting off your nose to spite your face a bit, doesn't it? Or have just things gotten that nasty? It was becoming nasty. It took a bit of a nasty turn on the 27th of April. There was an attempt to blow up a railway bridge on the line which linked the Waikato coal mines with Huntley. Now, this bridge um, was extensively damaged by um, six plugs of dynamite and just shocked the nation. An infamous act of terrorism, as Holland described it, and it was followed promptly by the formation of a civil emergency organisation. And the, the people flocked to join it, actually, and its purpose was to assist in preserving law and order and to provide protection for citizens and their families who were undertaking essential duties. That much fear in the country, eh? Wow. Yeah, there was. And there were within half a day of its announcement, there were 500 volunteers in Wellington for the emergency organisation and even members of the RSA, Graham, were asked by the um, national executive to join the organisation. So sort of almost like a little armies. Now, a thousand strong um, strikers marched from the Trades Hall in Wellington to Parliament Building. This happened on the morning of the 2nd of May. It was broken up by a detachment of policemen a very determined baton charge on the strikers as they attempted to march through the police lines. It brought the marchers to a halt and they dispersed after being told that a deputation would meet the government, but it definitely showed the strikers that they were now going to have to cope with violence if they were going to carry on. And there were some real dirty tricks too, weren't there? It was vile. Definitely Cabinet Minister's wife was rung by an anonymous caller and said, I'm sorry, I've bad news for you. Your husband has been killed by the watersiders. And then the man just hung up. And Holland said it was the latest example of the dastardly depths to which people would sink. And the Prime Minister said that the wife of a prominent trade union official who was not on strike had also been telephoned and a, and a woman's voice had threatened her and said, let me warn you, your house is going to be dynamited. The threats were anonymously telephoned phoned also to the MP for Selwyn, that was John McAlpine, and his wife after he'd registered for service with the Civil Emergency Organisation. So it just showed you anyone was fair game. The government took very elaborate steps to protect the members of the new Waterside Workers' Union in Auckland when they turned up for work on the um, 3rd of May and about 150 police on duty. And then there were 200 men from the uh, military services also patrolled the wharves and streets to protect them as well and the naval men all carried batons and it just sort of shows you the level of protection that was required for these new workers. They were basically filling the ranks of the workers with these servicemen as well and the Labour's Party attitude to the strike and the emergency regulations as explained by Nash, he gave an address to 6,000 people in the Auckland domain on the 13th of May. I said I'm not here to talk in support of the watersiders, I'm not here to talk in support of the employers. 
I'm not here to talk in favor of the government. I'm neither for or against this strike. I'm giving you the facts. And Menenik carried it out through the years, neither for nor against. On the 1st of June, the emergency regulations were continued for another month, and, and, and on that same day, the police had uh, their worst clash with deregistered watersiders and uh, sympathisers, and that took place in Upper Queen Street. Totally broke up the protest march, and uh, 10 watersiders and two policemen were admitted to hospital. Now, That's a hell of a scrap, isn't it? Yeah, and of course people taken to hospital, that'd only be one in ten of people that'd be injured, I'd say, that went home with a bleeding head or so. And But by early June, the collapse of the strike uh, didn't seem far off, really, and uh, the the um, support was waning, and the Watersiders leaders addressing big gatherings, and they were still getting good hearings, though, from their supporters, but they sought to convey every confidence that they could still win the showdown, and, and Jock Barnes particularly press for a fight to the finish. We know what we're fighting for, and come what may, they can bash and they can jail and do what they like. We will win. We know what we're fighting for. <laughs> fighting for the rights of our wives and kids to live as human beings. For the rights of New Zealanders that are still to be born. We know what we're fighting. We'll fight till we win. <laughs> And at the beginning of July, the West Coast miners, they were voting to go back to work. In some ways, the miners suffered the most, they say, because in Wellington and Auckland, they could, and even Littleton, they uh, they got a considerable subscriptions quietly to help them, I think. But on the West Coast, they were as poor as hell. And when they went back to work, I understand they, they still helped the strikers with payments. Yeah. So, you know, they, they do a bit of a whip around and say... OK, these people aren't earning any money. Yeah, that's right. And the 9th of July, I think all the coal mines were back on working, but uh, on 11th of July, the seamen returned to their ships and by then the leaders of the deregistered union had acknowledged defeat and, and they actually recommended that all branches um, resume work now. God, that must have been a bitter pill for them to take after all that time. And all the people that were against the watersiders would have thought, you bastards have just crippled for a long time our economy and divided the nation for nothing. And a lot of the watersiders reporting for duty, but the outlook for, for some of them was not bright at all. The 12th of July, the deregistered men at Littleton were told to get work when and where they could, and the 1,500 deregistered men at Auckland were told the wharf register was full. Right, you can go back to work on the waterfront. Oh, no, sorry, we're full. Yeah. They've got other people and they don't want you there. Yeah, and there twenty over 20,000 workers had taken strike action during the dispute and three-quarters of them were idle for most of the 20 weeks it lasted. In Parliament, of course, there were charges that the government had uh, lost the confidence of the people. Um, on the 11th of July, um, Holland uh, he said he wanted to face the electors and be judged on its handling of the strike put his reputation on the line in that general election. It was held on the 1st of September and as a result of it, the government's majority in the House increased from 12 to 20 and this was basically an unmistakable vote of confidence and it vindicated the government's handling of the most widespread and costly strike um, in our country's history. Those draconian measures, it's amazing how so many of the public and an unlikely sector thought 
those measures were a good idea. Such was the hatred towards the watersiders. I'm talking students at university. Well, incredible, isn't it? We had a students meeting to condemn, we thought, the emergency regulations which took away all our civil liberties. Uh, and uh, in the socialist club, which I belonged to at that stage, uh, we thought it was a foregone conclusion. But of course, uh, what happened was there's a huge turnout of students. They were all terribly fearful, I think, of being thought to be slightly pink. And, uh, and they voted 10 to 1 for the emergency regulations. This was unbelievable. These people were doing things like history, English, philosophy. They were supposed to be examining the value of ideas and words. And they were voting for fascism. And the, the defeat of the Wharfies it sort of reasserted the uh, Federation of Labor's control over the New Zealand Union movement in a way, and that, that bitterness between supporters of the Watersiders and, and uh, FOL leaders, you know, such as um, uh, Paddy Walsh and stuff, that, that lingered for decades. The Watersiders, you know, they, they, they gave out a loyalty card, and it bears the words, stood loyal right through, and it was a prized badge of honour more than half a century later, the 51 dispute, it continues to hold a central place in the history of the of the New Zealand Labour movement, really. But man, if you had one of those badges stood loyal throughout a certificate, you really had something uh, to, you know, something staunch to hold on to. You really did. I think the government's heavy-handed reaction, especially regarding freedom of speech and association and don't feed them, don't feed them, that sounds like something from the Siege of Leningrad. Shall we starve them out? How could kids be separated at school, Graham? And that shows you how dirty it got. It really did. OK, Jared. Thank you very much. Cheers, Graham. And we just happened to have audio, thanks to New Zealand on screen, of a eulogy being given to Jock Barnes at his funeral. Jock Barnes. The old fella... He pulled his chair over next to the ranch slider so he could soak up some of the winter sun. If ever a man had earned the right to sit in a chair and soak up the sun, it was Jock Barnes. His old work-worn body was full of aches and pains. He'd worked on the wharf when it was heavy, brutal, dirty and dangerous.
thank you all very much for listening. And a reminder that the Outsiders Archive is available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Easy to find over there on the right-hand side. It says Archives. We've got archives for strange societies, shipwreck tales, tales of the lost, and Outsiders. Um, tons of good stuff. You can fill your boots. And also, so you can carry it around with you really easily, the show is a podcast, hour by hour. So if you're listening on the podcast, a very special hello. There's also the Facebook page. I may as well mention it. It's a fun little community of people. And we get up to stuff during the week. You can have your say on things too. Wow, Graham, why don't you do this? You can ask Max Cryer a question. Why don't you ask Grant Christie a question about astronomy? That would be good. Um, so fill your boots as far as that goes as well. Thank you very, very much for listening. There'll be another Weekend Variety Wireless next week. This week, I'm trying to do uh, something on Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Why? The Auckland Philharmonic Orchestra, they're going to have a lash at it. I think they might have done it before. They're quite good at this sort of thing. We wish them luck. I hope they get from the beginning all the way through to the end. And why the hell can't we clap after um, phase one? Symphonies come in one, two, three, four chunks. And Beethoven's seventh is one of my favourites of all time. I'd like to clap after the first one. <gasps> but you can't do that. I've spoken with conductors and some of them don't give a hoot. Bless. Have a great week, everybody, and have a great night. Uh, overnight talk, 0800 844 747.